Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to episode 41 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hi, I'm okay. I'm ready to get into part two today. Part two, going to be exciting. Got some good feedback on the case last week actually. As we said, I think it's one that's been often requested. So uh, it'll be a good one to finish off and, and put behind us. A very interesting case. Yeah, definitely. Now, we were lucky enough to have some more Patreon supporters this week too. We do. Thank you so much and welcome to Jess Gilbert, Adrian Noons, Ben, Jackie Brown, Michelle and Rebecca Pittman. Thanks for the support, everyone, uh, and all of those uh, who continue to support us. We uh, really appreciate it. We're also working on some giveaways, uh, which we're going to probably work out during the week and chat about uh, more next week, but some merch giveaways for some of our Patreon supporters. Uh, we're all spending a bit more time inside at the moment, so we thought that might be a, a good thing to do. Yeah, keep an eye out. And just a heads up, there are some uh, graphic descriptions, some child sexual abuse instances satanic themes and discussions surrounding the LGBTQI plus community in this week's episode, very similar to last week's. And before we get into today's episode, a really quick note, this is part two. So if you haven't listened to part one, hit pause and go back and listen to that. Unlike, say, the uh, Bandali Debs and Silk Miller episodes where it wasn't mandatory but beneficial to listen in that order, Uh, This one you will miss out if you haven't listened to part one. And there's a lot of audio in today's episode, Chloe. We were were chatting about that before we uh, came online, and that's thanks to the Forensic Investigators episode on the case, which we'll link in our show notes. But there's a lot of police interviews and recordings, which is deeply disturbing but very intriguing to hear. Nothing quite like hearing it from the uh, the horse's mouth, so to speak. But we'll get into all that. We're not going to recap things. We're going to jump straight into it with a bit of a glimpse into what's to come later in this tragic tale. Detectives Joe Cassar and Russell Oxford inspected the scene. The house was immaculate, not an item out of place, not a dirty dish left out. Bloodstains lined the hallway leading into the bedroom where the victim lay. There was a smear of blood on the door jamb 
and in another room nearby, a footprint on the bedspread facing an open window, the likely point of escape. The victim lay slouched over the bed, battered and mutilated, the blood spattering on the walls and bed abundant. The throat had been cut and there was noticeable slashes around the buttocks. Shocking as the crime scene was, however, the most likely perpetrator was safely locked away behind bars. Or was he? So picking up where we left off last week, Mark Van Crevel, or Mark Valera as he was now known, had arrived at Wollongong Police Station with his Taekwondo instructor Rodney Day to confess to the murders of David O'Hearn and Frank Arkell. Police were stunned when they rolled in to interview Mark Valera. They'd been surveilling him, as we said last week, and were in the midst of mounting a case against him. They had been planning to arrest him when he'd handed himself in of his own volition perhaps with a bit of a nudge from his instructor. But this wasn't a man with a rap sheet here, Chloe. This was essentially a kid. 18 years old, tall, slim, fresh-faced, but seemingly with a lot of pent-up rage to commit such a pair of heinous crimes. Police were baffled at how this mild-mannered kid could commit such acts and intrigued to know his motivations. When it came to David O'Hearn, there seemingly was no motivation other than him wanting to kill someone. It wasn't motivated by David being homosexual. Valera didn't even know him. It was a random attack. Valera's lack of remorse and malice was something police hadn't seen before. But there was no doubt that Mark Valera was speaking the truth because he knew things that only the killer would. We're going to play some extended audio now from Mark Valera's confession to detectives where he outlines shocking details of the murder of David O'Hearn. And these clips are kind of spliced together from interviews in the police station and the tour of the house or crime scene Valera agreed to conduct with police. Sort of like that walkthrough that Donnie did with the police back in the Valentine's Day episode, if listeners recall. And as I said before, this is very interesting but deeply disturbing to listen to. I suppose in your own words, can you tell me what information you have about the death of Mr O'Hearn? I don't know anything much about David himself, but... Um, I murdered him. That's, I, don't, I don't know much about him. I didn't know him as a person. Well, well can you tell me, say, your movements for that day? We're looking for uh, the 12th of June, 1998, when David was killed. I uh, went to David O'Hearn's house at about 6 o'clock at night. Was it an arrangement that you had to go there at that time? Um, no, no. Or did you just simply just turn up out of the blue to go and see him? Yeah. Did David know you were coming there? No. Not. Do you know David O'Hearn? No. I just um, went to his house. I knew where he lived. Well, how did you know where he lived? Oh, I've seen him around because I lived in the same street. Well, why did you go to his house? Just, um, I had in my mind that I wanted to kill someone that day. I was really angry and I said to myself, I could kill someone. Um, as we said in the interview um, back at the police station in Wollongong, you came to the house that morning, oh, that, after, that night about 6pm, yes. and you said you've knocked at the door, so the, the front door was closed. 
Now, can you indicate to me what happened once Mr. O'Hearn answered the door and where you went to? Um, I stayed at the door and asked if there was any um, like accommodation around. And like he said, come in and we'll talk about it. And um, I talked about with him and he offered me a drink. And if you can take the place of, of David O'Hearn for the purpose of this exercise, if I can just get you to stand up, please. And you, if you can indicate, if Detective Castor is walking away that way, if you can just indicate what you did with him. Yep. The walk, bang, hit him on the head, and he slumped down there. And I continued to hit him on the head with the bottle, I think, about ten times. It was some fancy glass bottle, just like well-rounded. And um, it was really heavy. Now, when you went to the house, did you carry anything with you? No. I strictly use all his stuff. Can you indicate whereabouts you found items in here? Found there was a hacksaw up here with a hammer and the knives were just in the drawers here. And I got a sharp knife and um, cut through his stomach. And like cut through his stomach and I cut his head off, I cut his hand off and I wrote all the signs on the wall. Do you recall where you drew the pit? Yeah, well, uh, that first. the pentagram was on this side. Okay. Yeah, I used hand. his hand and I just I drew, drew that there, the circle. I went, when I do it next, I'd done the inverted cross on that side of the wall. I'm not satanic, but in satanic terms, it's like Jesus hanging upside down in hell. Well, where did you learn about these things? Oh, like um, from the music I used to listen to. Yeah, at that stage, what did you decide to do? I just um, looked at his body for, I don't know, just a couple of minutes, just looked at, um, seeing what I'd done. And then um, I just took the gloves off and I washed all the blood off my hands and off my face because there was a fair bit of blood on my face. Then I um, walked out, calmly walked out. Mark Valera thought about keeping David O'Hearn's skull as a trophy, but ultimately he decided against that. He spared no details again when going through the murder of former Lord Mayor and alleged child sex offender Frank Arkell. Okay, now do you know, did you know Frank Arkell prior to this? I knew of him. What did you know of him? I knew that he was a convicted pedophile. And what made you decide to go to his house that afternoon? I um, had in my mind that I wanted to kill him because I um, didn't like him. Uh, so I just pretended I was gay and like I called him up. Can you remember what you actually said? What, you, what name you gave? Uh, hi, uh, my name's John. And, uh, John. I was wondering if I could come down to your house and he said, yeah, sure, come down, blah, blah, blah. I walked down to his house and like he thought like, I liked him and um, I went into his room out the back, he turned his back to me, I rammed him into the wall. And what's happened then, once his head struck there, what's happened? He fell to the ground and I gave him a few hard boots. Yeah, okay, right now. What I grab next? Um, fucking hell, pardon my language. I grabbed the cord and I put it around his, around his neck. I was attached to a lamp and I just like, thrusted it down like that. Really. How many times do you think you hit him? 40 plus times. More than 40 times? I blood all over my face and on my hands, on my boots. I was swearing at myself. Got blood all over me 
effing pants. Show me where, where you took the boots off. I took them off just at the end here and just like went down and like undone my boots. I just left them here. There's a reason why you left the boots here. Well, I didn't want to take them with me. Why is that? Well, isn't it obvious like someone would have seen me with bloody boots? I just walked through here and there's a couple of pairs of black, um, like track pants. There's the black one, what I got. Whereabouts were they when you found them? They were just like on the bed. My intention was to find something to wear other than bloody pants. And what have you done with the black pair of pants? I just um, carried them out. I just walked out. When I came back, I got the tie pins. I just looked around. Okay, can you just show us whereabouts you got the tie pins? You recall the tie pins? <sighs> they were up here. I was just looking for them. And I stuck some tie pins, one in his eye and one in his cheek, his left face cheek. Okay. You've got different tracksuit pants off yeah. because you left your Nike ones here. Yeah. Is that correct? Yes. What have you done then? I just stepped over the blood. I walked out and I can just leave the old bloody pants in there. What's made you want to come forward now? Uh, I feel it's um, the right thing to do and I had to get the shit off my chest. Well, can you give me a reason why you decided to kill Frank Arkell? Uh, I didn't like him. Um, I know it wasn't for me to take it into my hands, but um, I, f I felt someone should have killed him. I said, to myself, I could kill someone. What made you angry? I don't know, some stress, I guess. What type of stress? Oh, I just um, stress out a lot. Um, to relieve the stress you were under, you went out and, and did this? Yeah. So this was absolutely chilling. This young, mild-mannered and well-mannered young man had killed two people in cold blood. Uh, but he'd brutally mutilated them post-mortem too, and all because he just wanted to know what it was like and had some anger issues, evidently. Of the tie pins stuck in Frank Arkell's face, Valera reasoned that they were just there, so he stuck them in his cheeks and eyes for no real reason. And it was Valera who had indeed called Frank Arkell using the name John, as we covered in last week's episode, before attacking and killing the 62-year-old. Valera's disdain for Arkell was suggested by others he knew, namely his sister Belinda, in later interviews with police, when she said Mark and his mate Keith Schreiber may have thrown eggs at Arkell's residence and verbally abused him when passing by. Yeah, it's not a stretch to imagine they'd also thrown those firecrackers and perhaps a few rocks through the windows too. Searches of Jack Van Crevel's home, where Mark used to live with his father and sister Belinda, and the Hebron House Hostel, found a number of items that only bolstered the police's case. They discovered a gold chain that was David O'Hearn's, his family identified this. They found the missing tracksuit top of Frank R. Cowles that matched the pants Valera had swapped his bloody ones for at the crime scene. But most interestingly was a book police discovered that gave a chilling insight into Mark Valera's mind. And this wasn't some piece of literature here, Chloe, not The Catcher in the Rye or The Collector. That's a bit intellectual for Mark Valera, evidently. Police found a book called The A to Z of Serial Killers. Apparently friends and housemates recalled him reading this regularly, often leaving it lying on the coffee table for anyone to see. 
Inside the book, Valera had a list of potential future victims. Notably, it had Frank Arkell and David O'Hearn's names in it. It also posed the question in big red letters, who will be my number three? Jack Van Crevel was surprised when police showed up to search his home, but not altogether shocked. In fact, he'd had conversations with friends when the perpetrator's clothing had been advertised by police that Mark wore very similar trackies and boots. But he didn't want to believe his own son could be capable of such a brutal series of crimes. Plus, all the kids wore that stuff, right? You know, at this time, those boots were the trend. Everyone wore those trackies too, and, and friends just reassured him that it was probably a coincidence. Jack again had these worrying thoughts when he and Mark had an argument only a short time before he handed himself in, when afterwards, Mark mentioned to his dad that he would be number three. Jack had the passing thought about the murders, but again, thought it more likely his 18-year-old son was just flexing his muscles, you know, trying to find his spot in the, in the world's pecking order. Jack fobbed off the notion once again. But now, it was all evidently true. Jack Van Crevel had been less than a fan of Keith Triber, Mark's best mate, thinking him a poor influence. He had got Mark into this death metal music and also interested in subjects like Adolf Hitler. He thought little of Keith and didn't like the fact that the pair were seemingly inseparable. Jack conceded he'd been hard on Mark, even physically at times. Having raised a hand to him on occasion, Jack had been sole parent to Mark and Belinda since they were three or four when his wife Elizabeth left. She took both kids at first, but the pair agreed on joint custody. However, Jack would ultimately end up having the kids full-time and raising them. Far as Jack knew, Mark hadn't been in any real trouble with the law other than when him and a mate of his broke into their school once as youngsters. Other than that, and this influence from Keith Schreiber in recent times, Mark had been a normal kid. He was into motocross, basketball and taekwondo. It wasn't until this aforementioned argument that Jack learned Mark had changed his name from Van Crevel to Valera. Mark spat this out at the end of their verbal trade, telling his old man he did it because he hated being a Van Crevel. Elizabeth, Mark and Belinda's mother, was now back on the scene as Mark's trial began after 24 months in remand. And how did the trial go, you might be asking? Mark Valera's confessed after all. So was there even a need for a big trial and associated media hype? Well, Valera's defence would go in a very dark direction. His legal team argued that the crimes weren't murder, but in fact manslaughter on the grounds of provocation. And they led with a sexual abuse defence, claiming Mark had endured repeated sexual abuse as a child at the hands of his own father, Jack Van Crevel. Frank Arkell's reputation preceded him, as we know, but the defence team also contended that David O'Hearn had taken his pants off and propositioned Mark when inside his home, even put a pornographic video on, apparently, before getting down on all fours. This caused Mark to basically dissociate and have a flashback and lash out in a psychotic episode, essentially. Mark Valera's defence lawyer told the court both men were killed because they wanted sex with the accused. He also blamed Valera's interest in Satanism and 10-year history of physical and sexual abuse at the hands of his father. It was only when the power of Satan flowed through him or that he became Satan himself that Mark was so powerful he could kill the man he hated, his father. So the defence went down this road and the prosecution countered. 
They were able to prove with a forensic expert testifying that the jeans David was wearing when he was murdered had blood spatter on the rear from the buttocks to the upper portions of his legs, which proved that the jeans were up and being worn when the blood hit them, not down around his ankles with him on all fours, as Valera's version went. The police did find a video in David O'Hearn's VCR, however. Was this the pornographic movie Mark Valera was referring to? No. It was a documentary about the late Princess Diana that his brother Graham had recorded for him, so not sure about you, Chloe, but that's not exactly my idea of a fun night on the couch. The defence went pretty hard on Jack Van Crevel during cross-examination. Mark alleged that his father had sexually abused him since the age of seven, forcing acts of masturbation and oral sex before forcing anal sex upon him at the age of 12. Jack admitted to being hard on Mark physically as a kid, hitting him, even kicking him, throwing a spanner at him and holding an unloaded three oh three rifle to his head once, but he staunchly denied ever sexually abusing his son. Even when offered immunity from prosecution, Atiri Jack denied ever sexually abusing his son. In fact, Van Crevel family members and friends would later say that Jack admitted to even more than he actually did, to try and diminish his son's culpability for the murders. He was said to be a good father who did everything for his kids, brought them bikes and actively participated in their lives. Mark's testimony when he took the stand was inconsistent with recollecting and detailing the alleged abuse and how the flashbacks had triggered during the murders. He detailed how he'd known Frank Arkell for some time, actually. They'd had sex a number of times over various visits, all of this in contrast to his police confession. The book by John Suter Linton, Bound by Blood, details much more about the trial, the witnesses and cross-examinations, the families and what they all had to endure. It's definitely worth a read for more detail on this aspect of the case. In the end, though... Mark's story was only believed by a few people. His mum, Elizabeth Carroll, who was back on the scene now after not being around much for the past 15 years, his sister Belinda and buddy Keith Schreiber. But most importantly, the jury didn't believe him. On the 8th of August 2000, Mark Valera, formerly Van Crevel, was found guilty of the murders of David O'Hearn and Frank Arkell and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. His mother sobbed, saying it was her son, it wasn't fair, and it was his father's fault. His sister Belinda echoed those sentiments in the following clip, and Mark parted the courtroom with the words, pedophiles always get away with it, don't worry about it. A 21-year-old man has has been found guilty of murdering former state MP Frank R. Kell and Wollongong shopkeeper David O'Hearn. Mark Van Crevel said during the trial that both his victims wanted him to perform homosexual acts. He also accused his father of a lifelong pattern of violent physical and sexual abuse. After the verdict, Van Crevel's mother left the courtroom distraught. Father's fault! I'll get you, Jack! I'll get you! He drove him to do it. He drove him to do what he did. He's the one that should be in jail, not my brother. That crying in the middle was Elizabeth Carroll and, at the end, Mark's sister Belinda. And ordinarily, that'd be the end of our tale, Chloe. You know, we'd give our thoughts and wrap this puppy up until next week. But this macabre tale is far from over.
around 3.20am, the early morning hours of August the 18th, 2000, Belinda Van Crevel, a dishevelled mess with bloodshot eyes and tears running down her cheeks, wandered into the Warilla police station, her two-year-old daughter Tia in one arm. There's blood everywhere. Help me. I'm scared, she said. Police made their way to the Van Crevel home in Albion Park immediately thereafter. And here we flash back to the introduction where lead detectives Joe Cassar and Russell Oxford inspected the scene in front of them. They went inside and entered the master bedroom. There lay Jack Van Crevel. He was kneeling beside the bed with his chest on the bed and his arms down by his side. He was naked with significant trauma to his back and head and mutilation evident on his rear end. An abundance of blood spattered the walls, curtains and bed On the floor at the end of the bed was a tomahawk or hatchet, a knife and a fire poker. The poker and knife were from the house, but police were unsure about the small axe. Police used luminol to trace a bunch of bloody footprints that had faded as they'd traipsed throughout the house. These prints went from the master bedroom through the lounge room to the fireplace and then back through the lounge and into the bedroom again. Jack's granddaughter Tia had her bedroom nearby. There was a footprint in there also, and the fly screen to the bedroom window had been removed, indicating the attacker had fled through the window. Tia wasn't sleeping in her bed, though. She'd spent the night across the hall with her mum, Belinda. And this was the obvious first port of call for the police. Had Belinda heard anything? I was woken by the noises, and I'm like, and was that frightened, and I put the quill over me, head, and put, the, put it over there, it's sort of like somewhere hidden. That went on for a while, I don't know exactly how long, like just all noises. And then um, my bedroom door opened and like that was it. I thought that's it, I'm dead. Um, and then it closed again. And I just laid there like, like scared, like st- I went stiff. I was that worried that like, Someone was going to kill me. Come and do you too. Yeah. Then I didn't want to stay in the house either. When I got, was holding tail, when I walked out of my room, when I seen the blood, there was no way in the world I was going to open my dad's door. Um, like, I wanted to get out of there. So I just jumped in my car. When I jumped in my car, I felt a bit relieved and locked the doors and then drove straight to the real police station. How do you feel about what's, all, what's happened? I'm scared for my sake and for Tia's, like for Tia's sake. And, like, I don't want to get Mark in trouble or anything like that. He's already in enough trouble. But I've always had my suspicions about those two killings. And now this happening, like, I just... Just everything isn't fitting together and, it, and I just... I don't know what to do. Who, who do you um, think is responsible for your father's death? I don't know. What did you hear? Like that, but really loud, like, like someone breathing really heavy, but like, like, like that, but really loud. Like, I can't even describe what it was like. It was awful. So that was what Belinda had heard, an obviously terrifying moment for her and her daughter to hear that happening to their father and grandfather, and they'd subsequently fled, gone to the police station and reported the attack. So... First thoughts here, considering the brutality of the crime, the victim and the mutilation, was 
Had Mark Valera organised the murder of his father from behind bars in jail? Or had he done some sort of law-abiding citizen type deal, tunnelled out and Gerard butlered his old man? He had threatened his father before, telling him he'd be number three. But in reality, that wasn't possible. That's just me putting some mayo on things with the movie reference. This isn't Hollywood, and Valera was securely behind bars. He'd had few, if any, visitors in jail... He was interviewed, and whilst he had no sorrow, didn't care what had happened to his dad, he was fishing for details. He really had no idea how it had all gone down, and he hadn't escaped custody, nor could they trace any real contact he'd had indicating he might have organised or been involved in any way. And you'd have to think Belinda was looked over too. I mean, her two-year-old wouldn't have been the best alibi witness. I'm sure she was examined by police. But there'd be nothing forensically linking Belinda, the only other adult occupant in the house. No blood, nothing in her room other than a blood stain on the door handle from the attacker. She clearly wasn't involved. So, who and why? That was the question. And there's an obvious and a few less obvious avenues to go down when asking that. But before we do, we have to back up the truck for a minute and talk about Jack Van Crevel, the victim in this devastating murder. Police were obviously a bit shocked to see what they were seeing, having just recently had two gruesome killings like this in their rearview mirror and the murderer locked away behind bars. It was the wrong kind of deja vu, and Jack Van Crevel had obviously been through the ringer in recent times, with his son Mark accusing him of sexual abuse as a child during his murder trial, his estranged ex-wife and daughter rallying behind Mark too and, and not him. But... He had family and friends who were firmly in his corner, and Jack himself wasn't a pushover. So let's talk a bit about him before we circle the wagon back around to the investigation into his murder. Jack Van Crevel, despite his Dutch ancestry, was about as Aussie as you could get. Just shy of six foot, tanned, fair-haired with a solid build, a pair of stubbies and an ice-cold beer. Paul Hogan, I'm picturing. Jack was the only one of his four other siblings to be born in Australia. He came along in 1952, grew up in Wollongong, became a carpenter and then a qualified draftsman. This led to a successful career within the property industry as he became a sought-after builder in the Albion Park and Kiama regions. In his mid-20s, so 1975 or thereabouts, Jack met Elizabeth. The pair went on to marry and bought a block of land in Albion Park. They built a garage kitted that out and lived in it while they built their house. By 1979, they were in the three-bedroom home and Elizabeth gave birth to Mark, the couple's first child. The following year, they'd have Belinda in August of 1980. Not long after this, though, the couple's marriage deteriorated. They fought a lot and eventually separated, with Elizabeth initially taking the kids. Reports on what transpired thereafter aren't particularly clear, but... It was intimated that Elizabeth struggled with the kids, with finding work and getting herself into trouble on the odd occasion. She apparently lived out of her car for a bit before returning to Jack, then leaving again. This time Mark and Belinda stayed with their father. The parents met in family court, obtaining joint custody, but in reality Jack was left the sole parent, with Elizabeth only intermittently appearing in the kids' lives after this. The kids were two and three at this point, some reports said three and four, But it was a struggle for Jack, as it is for many single parents. 
Luckily, he was fairly savvy with the coin and was able to organise work around his kids somewhat. But you know, he wasn't a homemaker. He had to work, so he struck up babysitting arrangements uh, with locals. In particular, there was one local family, Anne and Peter Stanford. They'd become close as their kids were young too, and Anne would have the kids for Jack from time to time to help out. The Stanfords were supporters of Jack Van Crevel, as they'd seen him and the kids so often. He'd always had them packed lunches when he dropped them off, sandwiches, cheese sticks, drinks, and they'd taken the Van Crevel kids swimming with their kids, never seen a mark on them. So if Jack had in fact been the monster the kids would later allege, surely there would have been some sign of that. Jack always seemed to put his kids first. He had a couple of relationships after Elizabeth, but neither lasted the long term. It was said Belinda and Mark weren't keen on the women, and on Jack dating at all, really. Jack, when asked by family if he'd ever remarry, again put his kids first, saying there'd be time for that when they were grown up. Interestingly, the aforementioned abuse Jack allegedly dished out to his son Mark Belinda never mentioned any of this in her original police interviews. In fact, she'd never witnessed anything like that. All she'd seen was her dad go into Mark's bedroom a few times. Seeing how much Jack and Mark clashed as Mark grew into a teenager, Jack actually went to parenting classes to help with that, a few bedroom visits and chats don't really constitute sexual abuse. But she certainly sided with Mark upon hearing the revelations at trial. Belinda had gone from daddy's girl to a rebellious teenager. And in fairness, I think many, if not most girls and boys, probably go through that phase. But it's generally just that, a phase. For Belinda, it seemed to be taking her down a darker path. She was allegedly doing drugs, seeing men. And obviously we know she fell pregnant and had tea at the age of 17. Jack doted on his granddaughter, absolutely loved her. And one can only imagine how she felt hearing Poppy get murdered in the room next door to her. Jack liked most people, in fact. He wasn't said to hate anyone. He was a friendly type, people liked him, and he liked them. There was one glaring exception to that, however. And that was when it came to a young man who Mark had decided to befriend, a bloke named Keith Schreiber, a name we're all too familiar with. Jack didn't like Keith. He found him to be a poor influence on Mark and an ill-tempered and badly-mannered young man. Mark was always very polite, despite being a murderous psychopath. Even police commented on how good his manners were, so Jack had clearly instilled that into his boy. Keith had visited his buddy Mark in jail. In fact, he'd planned to on the day of Jack's murder with Belinda. However, they'd not booked the visit and subsequently got turned away. So the pair hung out and got a bite to eat for the rest of the day. Here's what Belinda had to say about Keith and his present whereabouts during her police interview. I don't know how it works inside jails or anything like that. I don't want to get Mark in trouble, but maybe he is covering for someone and they said that they'd do this for him. Or um, or maybe he's asked someone, I don't know, to do it. Having said that, then who would you think he would get to do it? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. If he hadn't have told, if he hadn't have said the things that he'd said to me about Keith, I'd say Keith. But apparently he's gutless. And where's Keith these days? He's homeless. He's homeless, is he? Yeah, that's what he said. Did he say where he was going? Oh, when I was sitting in the car when I first went there, he told me that he was staying under a bridge. And he got a 
sheet of tin or something and put it up. So I suppose he was just sleeping. I don't know. He didn't tell me where he was gone, but I assume he probably had nowhere to go. So it could have been someone else, but Keith Schreiber was obviously at the very top of the police suspect list when it came to Jack's murder. They had a history. Keith had a strong friendship with Mark and seemingly Belinda too. We know from all the satanic stuff that he was a troubled and perhaps confused young man. Had he gone so far as to become a killer? Well, police wanted to find that out and fast. If it was him, he had to be brought in. A witness phoned in to police that Schreiber was at Albion Park train station. Police went down there and, taking no chances, arrested him by force. They brought Keith in and straight away ran forensics on his personal property. One standout was the footprints at the Van Crevel house. These prints had a distinct irregularity in the sole of the attacker's shoe. Keith Schreiber's shoes had this exact same irregularity. The police interview with Keith went like this. Electronically recorded interview between Detective Senior Constable John Northfield and Keith Andrew Schreiber. Okay, Keith. Well, is there anything you can tell us about the incident that occurred last night with Mr Jack Van Crevel? I've done it. Happy. Can you tell me why you did it? That's a good question. Um, I was depressed and angry. He should, he should pay for what he'd done to, to Mark and Lena. When this was happening, did you say anything to Jack? Yeah, sort of for revenge for Mark. I said, I told him when I turned the light on, I told him this is for Mark. Fuck, pedophile bastard. You'll never molest another kid again. So he was clearly in a state here, young Keith. A very confused, emotional young man, all over the place really. In addition to him claiming that he'd done this for Mark, he'd apparently been told by Belinda that Jack had molested her two-year-old daughter, Tia. Also, an allegation that would have no evidence to support it. But clearly, it had an impact on Keith when he heard it. Next, police took Keith Schreiber for a macabre tour around Jack Van Crevel's house, like they'd done with Mark Valera previously. Got the bucket. And the window was open already, so I pushed it open. Yeah, pushed it open, um, stood on, and uh, climbed through. Okay, we're now in the deceased Jack Van Crevel's bedroom. Can you tell me what happened when you came in here? Up here. He was there, snoring. And I kicked it like that. That's what made the noise? Yeah. And he woke up. Whack. What were you feeling when you were doing this? Some loneliness. I was feeling lonely. You, you said earlier that you did. Yeah, uh, fucking hatred and anger. Fucking. But before, but when I was doing. So, yeah. Loneliness as well. Yeah, sort of wanted him to get me first. Why were you hoping that? Just fucking hate my life. If you can call it life. 
got up, uh, sort of sort of rolled over a bit, and I hit him again. So what's Jack doing while this is happening? Um, yeah, he's going, hey, 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 and I'm uh, that, um, stabbed him more. I turned the light on as I come back in, um, and then that's when he seen me. Uh, it was, um, and then I hit him um, okay, wh- a couple, wh- few times with the stoker. When he saw you, what happened? He looked at me and goes, Keith! And why were you doing this? Why? Yes? To kill him. What did you do then? I ran out. Yeah. Blue's door was closed. Um, I sort of pushed open there a bit and then uh, closed it. And after this, I went into the kitchen. And this is when police looked at each other with raised eyebrows. Around the time they got to the kitchen to get Keith's rundown on where he'd gotten the knife that had been found. He wasn't sure. He couldn't locate where the knives were even kept. One of the police officers knew and suggested the location. Keith was quick to agree and try to move on with the murder tour, but police were very suspicious by this point. Keith had been all over the details, very clear and forthcoming throughout, as if a weight had been lifted. It was a stark contrast to the interview room. Until they hit that kitchen. Then, he was bamboozled for some reason. Was that reason because the knife had come from elsewhere? Or perhaps it had been left out for him? If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. How do you feel about your father's death now? Oh, I don't know. Um, Not sad as yet, but it'll happen. Belinda clearly didn't care that her dad was dead. She had some disdain for him even, you could say. Despite the fact she was still living under his roof, taking his money, eating his food, he was the root of all evil, apparently. She had heard everything that happened to Jack, but did nothing. She had a mobile phone in her room when he was being attacked, but didn't call the police. She didn't run to a neighbour to seek assistance, and had strangely driven to a police station at Warilla, 15 minutes away, instead of her local. She could have been scared out of her wits, confused maybe, but the questions surrounding Belinda were innumerable. 
Police had a strong inkling Belinda had actually been in a sexual relationship with Keith Schreiber. They'd heard this word on the street and noticed how close they were at Mark's trial. They queried Keith about this, and he said it was irrelevant at first, but then conceded that they had sort of been seeing each other. Belinda had apparently told Keith that her father had molested Mark and that her daughter Tia had recently come out with some strange things, indicating that he'd been perhaps molesting or at least grooming her for the same. Police queried Keith, had Belinda asked him to kill Jack? Jack molested Mark. And Tia's been, um, his granddaughter has been saying, coming out with a few weird things. Did she ask you to do it? Yeah, I know, I know she, wanted, she wanted him done. She wanted him done? Mm. So now police were looking pretty closely at Belinda's involvement. This was starting to piece together a few bits and pieces, like why Keith had become confused when it came to the setup of the murder, but not the actual carrying out of it all. It took some time, but police got their chance to interview Belinda for a second time some months later. Electron, are you recorded any of you? Detective Senior Constable Jamie Williams and Belinda Van Kerbel. Your mum, Elizabeth Carroll, mentioned to you any allegations of your involvement in your dad's death? Oh, apparently I told her that I was going to get Keith to kill Dad, that I told her that I was going to pay him to do it. Um, yeah, just that's about it, really. So she said to you that you told her that you were going to get Keith to kill your father. Yeah. <coughs> Is that true? No. You didn't say that to no. her. Have you ever paid Keith any money? No. For what? Since your father's death, have you ever given him any money? Um. No, I haven't. Police found enough evidence to warrant a search of the Van Crevel home. Here, they discovered incriminating notes, evidence of money orders being put into Keith's account in jail, and a letter from Keith to Belinda saying how he'd spent the money. This was all on top of her mum, Elizabeth Carroll's reported allegations that Belinda had put a contract out on her dad, which Elizabeth had actually told Jack in the days prior to his murder. Jack had only been back from Wagga Wagga for a few days and had actually gone and sought legal advice on this threat, but again decided to dismiss it. Here's police talking with Belinda during the tour of the house and about her relationship with Keith. The police thinking it was very possible she'd use this relationship to influence Keith into killing Jack. Yeah, sure. that's, um, yeah, obviously. In the letter, Keith's talking about, I should have bought a radio with that money, but all I got was... It was a normal sort of relationship, Uh, just friends, you know. So you weren't going out with each other? No. And you'd never gone out with Keith, right? No, I never even thought about it. (laughs) You ever had any relationships with him? Why is there any nature like that? Uh, I won't answer that. I don't think that's got anything to do with this. It's actually got a lot to do with it because it's investigating the murder of your father. Yeah, but what's sex got to do with someone being murdered? We're just trying to... What relationship you had with the person who murdered your father? And but, like, but, a, would it make a difference? Would it? Well, it may make a difference to our investigation. Uh, why is that? Well, that's all we have to work out. 
I miss you heaps, you see, Keith. The thing I love the most is that no one really knows how much we trust and care about each other. I mean, I've been so close to you for how many years and no one could make up that that they've done more for me than what you have. I'll always look up to you and no one will ever come as anywhere near as close to me as you are. So you were in a physical relationship? I have been, yeah. You told us before that yeah, you'd never had or you had been. No, I said I didn't want to tell you. So now you're prepared to talk about it? Yeah. What's the situation with uh, your relationship? I had sex with him. In the end, police built a strong enough case and Belinda was charged with her father's murder. This charge was eventually changed to soliciting Jack's murder. By the time she went to trial, it was said Belinda had frittered away much of her inheritance she'd gotten from Jack, spending around $1,000 a week on cocaine, marijuana and amphetamines. Keith Schreiber was sentenced to 16 years jail for the murder of Jack Van Crevel, with a minimum of 12. The severity of Keith's sentence was said to be mitigated by his mental state at the time. He'd since backflipped and pleaded guilty, been prescribed antipsychotic drugs, and displayed deep hurt for doing what he'd done and believing what he had. Whether that was remorse or not, I'm not sure. Keith was also deeply disturbed to find out that his name was on Mark's list in his A to Z of Serial Killers book. He was released in 2012, but ended up back in jail because he was having trouble adapting back into normal life within the community. I expect he's since been released. Belinda Van Crevel pleaded guilty and was given a six-year sentence with a non-parole period of three and a half years. She's been in and out of jail since, having been charged with assault, theft and stabbing a partner at one stage. With this stabbing, she'd apparently met a carpet salesman named Marshall Goode. All was going well with this guy, love was in the air. They'd had a baby together. Until one day, Belinda had a psychotic snap. She attacked and stabbed Marshall ten or so times. He nearly lost his arm in the attack. She was lunging at Marshall, saying that she wanted to kill him, but she was calling him Jack. Marshall later said that her eyes completely glazed over and went black. The following morning, Belinda rang Marshall's dad when she couldn't get hold of him. Belinda couldn't recall anything that had happened. Marshall's dad said to her, "'You tried to kill him last night, you stupid bitch. He's in hospital.'" Belinda woke up with her son in her arms, blood everywhere, and with no recollection of the previous night's events. Two years she got for this attack, and in 2017 she was released. She did an interview with 60 Minutes in 2018, which was a bit of a puff piece, if we're being honest. I wonder how much she was paid for it, because really there was no need for the interview. There was nothing to set straight or anything. It wasn't a a Lloyd Rainey-type scenario. They spoke a bit about the aforementioned stabbing of her boyfriend, but largely focused on quizzing her about Mark and her father's murder. She's still non-repentant for having Jack killed. She says he got what he deserved. She is completely defensive of Mark, still in his corner, and they by and large built this interview up to reveal to Belinda that her name was also on her brother's list, in his A to Z of Serial Killers book, which she didn't know until that point. 
60 Minutes built it up to be this kind of shock revelation where she's going to crumble at the thought of her brother wanting her dead, but she pretty much just dismissed it as him being an angry kid and that she knows him better than anyone. Meanwhile, Mark Valera is rotting in jail for the rest of his life. He'll never see the light of day again. From pictures, he's certainly not the gangly teenager he once was. Valera looks like he's been on a steady diet of 4 and 20 pies in prison, resembling a Sopranos character more than anything these days. The Van Creville family have pretty much disowned Mark and Belinda these days, and while she's out in the community wanting to move on with her life, apparently no danger anymore, for the O'Hearn, Arkell and Van Creville families, this gruesome and disturbing time in their lives will never leave them, I would imagine. The broader effect on those around these three victims and three perpetrators are probably forever haunted by this sick and twisted series of murders. So our thoughts are with them. One can only hope that uh, Belinda and Keith have indeed turned over new leaves. David O'Hearn, Frank Arkell and Jack Van Crevel will never have that chance. But Chloe, that's about a wrap when it comes to the Wollongong murders. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, what a twisted tale of people who are obviously deeply troubled. Mark and his sister are both capable of things that not many people would be. Mark in particular, from my very basic understanding, displayed signs of psychopathy. He manipulated people and took so much time and put so much effort into murdering the people he did. Belinda as well, her blacking out and stabbing her partner, that level of violence is not something that we've seen often in people we've discussed on this podcast at least. I don't know about the allegations made against their father, that has been through the courts and I guess at the end of the day they're the only ones that really know what happened. I hope their family and the people connected with them are now living some sort of normal life and to reiterate what we said last week, As always, we think of the victims and hope that their loved ones are doing okay. Your thoughts, Sean? Yeah, I I personally don't believe the allegations against Jack Van Crevel. It's possible. You know, it can't be said for sure. But the only evidence is the word of a guy who murdered two innocent people in cold blood. I don't really have much to add other than that. You know, we mentioned the lead detectives briefly at the start, but generally throughout we just referred to them as the police because you know, there were so many characters in this tale. We wanted to keep it as simple as possible in that aspect. But uh, you know, what a disturbing series of crimes for them to investigate and deal with. As we said, it's it's been a highly requested case, so hopefully we've covered it well and fairly, but... um. I'm happy to put it behind us all the same. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, Well, let's move on then. Happy thoughts this week, Sean. What is yours? Uh, So mine is just uh, a very basic one, but it's kind of like (laughs) it's it's, um, contributing to your little food discussion, Chloe, that you often have. So um, I just wanted to uh, bring up that we got some really good Indian food last night just from our little local uh, Indian food restaurant. But, you know, with things at the moment being sort of, uh, you know, all of us sort of being in isolation and that type of thing. Uh, a lot of these places at the moment anyway, this, this may change, are still operating but generally doing takeaway, you know, deliveries and, and that type of thing. So we want to support the, the locals as much as we can and we got some of that, that food and it was uh, absolutely fantastic. So a small little uh, happy thought uh, amongst a, a bit of a confusing time for us all at the moment, I think. 
Yeah, well, mine's um, probably going back to basics as well, that um, I bought a deck of cards ages ago with the intention to take them on holidays with us, um, which I took and then probably left in my bag for the entire trip. But last weekend I got them out and I played this game called Bullshit. Um, It was basically the only card game that when I Googled how to play them, because I don't know any, not even poker, that I understood the instructions for because it's really easy and all you do is put cards down in order around the table and if you think that someone has put down the wrong card because you all put them face down, you call out bullshit and then if they have put the right card down, you have to take all the cards in the middle of the table but if they lied, they take them and the the aim of the game is just to get rid of all your cards. Um, Yeah, right. And it's just really funny. Like I got a real kick out of just at the end looking back through to see how much everyone had lied and put down the wrong card. Um, <laughs> it was, well, everyone that lives in my house that is here currently. But um, it was yeah, it was a really fun, dumb game to play. And, yeah, I really liked it. So that that's mine. If you Google that bullshit card game, if anyone wants to play it, I can't explain the rules properly because I'm rubbish at that kind of thing. But they're there and they're really easy to understand. <laughs> Oh, very good. Sounds good. And if you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime, and you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get our bonus monthly Blue Label episodes as well. And that's pretty much us for this week and part two of the Wollongong Murders. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you all next week. Uh, Until then, take care. Speak to you then. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.